that song. Amen. Here's a, this has nothing to do with my sermon tonight, but just a lesson in Christian maturity. It is not about you. <laughs> we live in a world that wants to encourage and support people, and we make a whole bunch of stuff about us. And as you grow in Christ, you will learn it really isn't about you. It never was about you. This is not your story. You are not king. You are not center of the universe. It's his plan of salvation. It's his story. And when we get that right and leave him at the center of everything, he is very apt to bless us in many, many ways that we don't even realize. So I, I like that song because Jesus should be at the center of it all. Amen. So. I get the privilege of coming to you tonight, and then I heard dynamic duo this morning. We'll see if that bears out to be true. My wife is coming after me, and the exciting part is we talked this afternoon, and she said that I could go first, and what I had to say was more important, and I could take as much time as I want, and she was okay with that. And if I chew up all the time and she has just a few minutes at the end, yeah, right. You don't believe any of that, do you? <laughs> She's like, baby, I got a lot to say, so I need you to go fast. Now, how many of you believe the second story? Because that's the true one. <laughs> See? She's like, you, you get going. So I started my stopwatch right now. You may go ahead and be seated. Try to move quickly tonight. So last week, I started what I thought was going to be one night thought, and it very quickly, I realized, developed into a short series. So... Last week was part one, tonight is part two, as we are working our way through 2 Peter. And what I had titled this, there we go, Maintaining Faith in an Age of Skepticism. And so we're going to get to part two of this tonight. Last week I had talked about where do we get to the skepticism part and the, the age that we live in and how that all ties together. And I told you to come back, so we're going to get to it tonight. As I was studying this week and getting ready to go into this, I realized that I was doing myself and you an injustice by just referring to 2 Peter chapter 2. And you'll see as we go through this tonight, I'm going to have to try and clip along quickly. If you have questions about this, you are more than welcome to catch me after church. I cannot go 45 minutes because at some point I have to go home with Rachel later tonight. <laughs> it's important that I, I keep moving along. But... Really, if you look at Scripture, we're going to do our best to jump back and forth. And again, you can catch me after church if you have questions, if I'm going too fast. The very small letter from Jude, that's right before the book of Revelation, at the back of your New Testament, parallels 2 Peter, and specifically 2 Peter chapter 2, extremely closely. There is a lot of connection there, and so I'm going to do my best to draw that out. And so we're going to bounce back and forth tonight between 2 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude. Most likely, just as we get into this, what happened, Jude says at the beginning of his letter that he intended to write basically an encouragement letter to the church at large. But something happened, we don't know what, but it brought to his attention this other dire need, something he felt was urgent, and it shifted the whole course of his letter. And that short little letter very, very much mirrors what we see in Second Peter. Most likely, if you read different scholars, Jude was aware of 2 Peter. That letter had already been written. He had already read that letter. And then whatever situation unfolded in his local church context, he felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to write a letter at large to the church body. 
and he pulled parts from 2 Peter. In other words, he, he was echoing Peter's sentiments. He was amening what Peter had already written and was kind of adding on more to it and saying, I agree with him and this is urgent and, and you need to be aware of this and you need to be warned. And keep in mind at this point in church history, the New Testament is not collected and codified into one document. So it's also very much possible that the people Jude was writing to may or may not have read 2 Peter. Jude was very aware, most likely, of 2 Peter, but that doesn't mean everyone reading his letter had heard the letter from 2 Peter because it's going to be a couple hundred years before all of what we refer to as the New Testament is collected all together into one uh, corpus, one body of literature. So just keep that in the back of your head as we're going through this. The thrust of this chapter in 2 Peter chapter 2 is a warning against these false teachers who are coming. And just like in the Old Testament, these false teachers, these false prophets are eventually going to suffer God's judgment and his punishment. But even when God judges them, the righteous need not worry because they will be rescued from their trials. And we'll get to that when we get to verse 9. So what is it that we should be on the lookout for? I talked about maintaining faith in an age of skepticism. What is it these false teachers are doing that both Peter and then later Jude felt the urgency to write a letter to the Christian church in general saying, you need to be aware of this and what's coming. You need to watch out for this kind of situation. It seems the strongest emphasis the two of them placed against these false teachers was what I have collectively called skepticism. This idea that they were dismissive of the things of God. They were dismissive of God's promises. They scoffed at, they mocked, they made fun of things and said, that's not real, that's not really going to happen. That's not true, that doesn't apply anymore. And you can see as we go through this, hopefully, we have a lot of parallels today. I'm going to have to come back a third time to tie this all together when we get to chapter 3 of Second Peter. But if you get nothing else tonight, know that we live in an age of skepticism. We live in an age uh, postmodern, as I talked about last week, where the world doesn't believe in absolute truth, at least in the Western world. And there are many people who are dismissive of authority. And they're dismissive of absolute statements. They're dismissive of scripture. And Peter and Jude made it extremely clear, you'll see tonight, that there is coming a reckoning. And those who deliberately dismiss scripture, those who are deliberately scoff at God's authority and what scripture has to say and warn us about will face his judgment and they will face a very, very harsh judgment. Let me make one other quick comment before we jump in. It is okay to have questions. I like questions. Questions are good and healthy. That's how we learn. I am not talking about questioning. I'm talking about an arrogant prideful attitude that is deliberately dismissive of the authority of scripture, deliberately dismissive of the move of God and says, that's not real. That doesn't apply. That's what Peter and Jude are speaking against. So if you're here tonight and you're reading through this and there are times when you have questions, when you don't understand something in scripture, where you're asking God, what does this mean? That's not what they're getting at. Questions are healthy. You should ask questions with a desire to learn. They're talking about an arrogance that goes with something that's dismissive, something that blows it off and says that doesn't matter. That's what they're speaking against. All right, having said that, let's dive right in. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 
But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. So they're speaking to the present tense and then also the future. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even, watch the first reference here, deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. So two things I want to point out tonight, bouncing back and forth. One is the attitude they have, and two, God's response. So here's our first example. The attitude is that they deny the master who saved them. And God's response, sudden destruction. Let's look at the parallel we see in Jude 4. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way. I like the New Living Translation. That's, that really gets at what it is. People have wiggled their way into churches subversively. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. So they like the grace part, but they deny the holiness part. They're dismissive of the righteous requirements of what God expects from us. Their condemnation, the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So you see that? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, they deny the master. Jude chapter 4, they deny, not chapter 4, Jude verse 4, they denied our only master. So you see this parallel where they've denied what God has brought them from. And Peter made it clear that there would be a sudden judgment that comes against them, a sudden destruction. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. Verse 1, he said sudden destruction. Here we are, verse 3. Their destruction will not be delayed. So you see this? Denying the master. Slandering the truth. This kind of language that Peter and then Jude are also forewarning against. Verse 4. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. I don't have time to get into this tonight. Maybe some other time I'll come back to this. There are several different words, three in the New Testament, that are used to describe hell. And we've kind of flattened them in English and we think of it all as one concept. Uh, and it's not. And I'll just leave that carrot out there. You can go look it up for yourself or we'll have to come back to it another time. Here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, the word that's used there in Greek is Tartarus. And this is the only time this shows up in the New Testament. And in Greek mythology, and Peter borrows from that idea because it had worked its way into Jewish apocalyptic literature as well. Tartarus was a place within Hades. Hades was the realm of the dead. But within Hades, there was another area that was the area of punishment what we closer think to the idea of what we think of as hell so you have the realm of the dead and within the realm of the dead there's a place of punishment and that's the greek word tartarus and that's the word that peter uses here when talking about hell and he says god did not spare even the angels who sinned and he threw them into tartarus in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until that day of final judgment then we can jump over to the parallel Jude 6. Jude says, And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within their limits of authority, 
that God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. And God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for that great day of judgment. So both Peter and Jude point out that God will take judgment even against these angels, these spiritual beings, when they rebel. And if God has this level of judgment for them, how much more do you think he has for false teachers and false prophets who deny their master and who slander truth and use grace as an excuse to live in any sort of immorality that they want? Sudden destruction. That's what both of them say is coming towards them. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And God did not spare the ancient world, except for Noah and seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment, and so God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. So we see not just judgment, but a swift judgment and a very extreme, harsh judgment that is forewarned against people who live this way. Jude mirrors the same thing. Jude 7 says, And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. So you see, both of these men have a very strong warning against people who would be dismissive, who would be skeptical of God's commands and God's authority. Back to 2 Peter. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. And this is an important theme that we see repeated multiple times in Scripture. Judgment is coming from God, and it will be swift and it will be terrible when he finally brings it. But even in a time of judgment, God takes care of his people. We just wrapped up a series with Dr. Jeffrey Brickle talking and working our way through Revelation. And if all we see is the judgment in that book, if all we see is the fear and the wrath of God, we've missed the larger picture. And as Christians who are living a dedicated godly life, we shouldn't read the book of Revelation and come away with a sense of dread. Those judgments are not aimed at us. And here we are, and we see even in 2 Peter, where he's giving this clear example in verse 9, that even when God does bring judgment, he makes a way to take care of his people. His wrath is not aimed at the righteous. And I lost my place in my notes. One second. He is especially hard. So he said swift destruction, terrible judgment. He is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who, watch this, despise authority. These people are proud and arrogant and they dare even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. 
Here's a parallel in Jude. In the same way, this is Jude 8, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives and they defy authority and they scoff at supernatural beings. Greek word there literally means the glorious ones. So depending on the translation you read, it might say something like glorious ones. It might say dignitaries. A lot of trans, some of the translations say supernatural beings. Who are these glorious ones? You'll see from the next few verses as we read in Jude and also in Second Peter, most likely we're talking about fallen angels because both Peter and Jude compare these glorious ones against the righteous angels. And so we see this contrast between them. And whatever they're talking about, they're not human. So pretty much the only reasonable explanation is that we're talking about some sort of fallen angels, some sort of demonic powers. And so they're talking about these false teachers, these false prophets, and they say, these people are so arrogant. These people are so full of pride that they would be dismissive of angels. And they scoff at these kind of things. You know, they've got this kind of attitude towards it. They're dismissive of it. They scoff at it. But look in contrast what Peter says. But the angels, now we're talking about righteous angels. But the angels who are far greater in power and strength, far greater than who? These teachers, these false prophets, who are far greater in power and strength, do not dare to bring from the Lord a charge of blasphemy against those supernatural beings, against those glorious ones. Jude 9 Contrasting verse, same thing. Even Michael, one of the mightiest angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. So we see whatever happened in that context. We see the archangel Michael. We see these very powerful angels, if you will, do not even disrespect these fallen angels there's some level of authority some level of recognition that is reserved there and the lord rebuke you in contrast to that these false teachers who are full of pride and arrogance they're dismissive of all spiritual authority righteous or fallen they scoff at it they blow it off it doesn't mean anything something that angels would not even dare to do Verse 12, 2 Peter chapter 2. These false teachers are like unthinking animals. Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. They scoff at things they do not understand. And like animals, they will be destroyed. They scoff at things they do not understand. And I think if there is any phrase that describes the world that we live in today, it's that. Not only is it arrogant, not only is it proud, not only is it dismissive of authority, they scoff at things they don't understand. If I can't explain it, if I can't empirically prove it with science, all right, if it's not something I can demonstratively demonstrate in the physical, natural realm, then it's not real. That's arrogance. In philosophy, we talk about a closed system. And basically what they're saying is, if I can't prove it, then it's not true. It's not real. Well, that, that makes you God. The limit of truth is the bounds of your knowledge. And so they scoff at things they don't understand. 
They're dismissive of spiritual authorities that they have no concept of, no clue about. And so like an animal that based on instinct, Peter says they are born to be caught and destroyed. Jude, that's a harsh statement. Jude 10 says the same thing. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so they bring about their own destruction. One of the harshest condemnations that Peter and Jude bring against these arrogant false teachers and prophets is the fact that they excuse their immorality. They excuse their immoral behavior, especially when it comes to sexual practices, and use the grace of God as a cheap cover to say, I can do whatever I want. And both Peter and Jude describe these people as animals who will be destroyed like an animal, like an unthinking animal. So the closest thing I could think to it today is for those of you who have any sort of hunting background, I'm not a hunter. My in-laws are. My wife's family is very much that. And I remember when I married her the first couple times I went hunting with them during a deer, deer season, my father-in-law is telling me about how careful bucks are, how strong and how they boastly are nocturnal and they're very cautious around people until you get to mating season. And as he said, then their brains fall out. And a male, if any of you have, know anything about hunting, seriously, a, a male buck during the rut will not eat for days and all they will do is chase does. And an animal that's extremely cautious and only comes out at night will spend all day long in broad daylight wandering through the woods trying to find does because it's only got one thing on its mind and that's when you can shoot them. That's when you hunt them because they're an unthinking animal driven by instinct only desiring one thing and they're stupid and that's how they get caught and that's how they're hunted and killed. And Peter and Jude describe false teachers and false prophets in this way. People who are driven by their own desires, their own immoral lust and they excuse it saying, well, the grace of God allows me to do whatever I want. They said they're like animals and their only purpose is to be destroyed. That is a seriously harsh statement to make about someone. But both Peter and Jude consider these false teachers in that category. They're like an unthinking animal driven by instinct. And the only thing that awaits them is their own destruction. So harsh, harsh rebuke against these teachers, against these false prophets who will excuse their behavior with the idea that the grace of God allows me to do whatever I want. They scoff at authority. They're dismissive of supernatural beings. They scoff at things they don't understand. They slander the truth. You see this language. And you don't have to look very far in our world today to find examples of this in the world all around us. And whether they claim to be Christian or something else, our secular education system is rife with this. This idea that I am my own authority and I'll reject whatever I don't like and claim it as false and I'll mock and be dismissive of traditional values or biblical authority or what your parents taught you or fill in the blank, whatever it may be. And so it's a very arrogant approach to life. And yet 2,000 years ago, we see two different apostles writing letters warning in the coming days and in future generations, this is what Christianity is going to face. You're going to face false teachers, false prophets, people who set themselves up as their own authorities, and they're dismissive of real authority. 
and they slander the truth and they're dismissive of scripture's authority and God's judgment and God's righteous requirements. They laugh at things they don't even understand and blow it off as not important. And you know what? They're like a base animal driven by instinct and their only purpose is to be caught and destroyed. I can't answer everything. It's a faith walk. By default, that means I can't explain it all. If I could explain it, if I could prove it, it wouldn't be faith. That was real deep, wasn't it? But that's the world we live in. You've got to prove everything. You need to demonstrate all of it. I can share my faith with you. I can tell you of my experiences and the things that have happened in my life. But at the end of the day, it's still a faith walk. I choose to believe this. I can't prove it. And God calls all of us as he calls all Christians everywhere in every generation. Some things you're just going to have to trust me on. You want to follow me? I'm not going to explain myself. Are you going to choose to obey me? Are you going to choose to have faith in me? And then he gives a warning for those of you who would claim to be teachers, claim to be prophets, rely on your own authority, and you dismiss what you don't understand or don't like. There is a sudden, terrible, swift judgment coming against those people. I find encouragement in that, in that because I'm not one of those people. And I choose to put my faith in God. And we need not worry about this judgment. Peter made it clear in verse 9 earlier, even in a time of judgment, God still preserves his own. And so while this terrible judgment is coming someday, and it will be swift, those who are faithful, those who choose to put their faith in God, need not fear that judgment. It's a warning to future generations of Christians by these two apostles who are recognizing there's quickly approaching a time where people are going to be dismissed. Did God really say that? We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in original sin. And that serpent shows up in the garden. Talks to Eve, well, what did God tell you? And she gives him a response. And his answer, did God really say that? It's okay. Again, it's okay to question. That's how you learn. I don't have a problem with questions. But that dismissive attitude, that skeptical attitude... That laughing and mocking at things you don't understand, being dismissive of authority, that'll land you in a world of destruction very quickly. As we see from both 2 Peter and Jude, God has zero tolerance for that. Their only purpose is to be caught and destroyed. I will bring sudden destruction on those people. So as God's people... Living in an age of skepticism, we have to choose to maintain our faith. But I find hope in this, even in a warning of destruction, because God says, I make a way for my people. And those who are dismissive and those who would seek to find a way to mock at all of this, they will not last very long. And my judgment is coming and it will be harsh and it will be hard and it will be fast. 2 Peter, verses 13 through 15. Their destruction is the reward for the harm they have done. They love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. They are 
a disgrace and a stain among you. They delight in deception, even as they eat with you in your fellowship meals. These are the people who know they're lying, who know that they are tricking people, and they enjoy it. They find pleasure in deceiving people, in perverting God's truth. They find pleasure in twisting what the scriptures say to make it match their own agenda. They commit adultery with their eyes. In other words, they constantly have a desire for more and anything they see they want. They commit adultery with their eyes and their desire for sin is never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin and they are well trained in greed. Watch this. They live under God's curse. So again, very harsh warnings, not for us, but a warning to watch out for these people whose appetite and desire is only for what they want. So they have wandered off the right road and they have followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. And we see a passage parallel in that in Jude 11. What sorrow awaits them? For they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. So the motivating factor for these false teachers, fortunately you are not in this kind of environment, but here's a litmus test for you. Watch the wind. If it all comes down to money, you're involved in some spiritual thing, some church group, and the driving motivator for everything is money, get out of there. That is a quick and surefire warning. Something is off. And Second Peter warned about this. And these people who find clever ways to get your money out of you, they are well trained in the art of deception. And his warning is those people, they live under God's curse. So they may live at large and well right now, but it will be short-lived and their destruction will be sudden. So you just tuck that one away. You are in a safe environment here. You will not hear that here. That is not our motivation. But if you're in a Christian environment somewhere and you realize, you know what? All we do is talk about money. All we do is talk about ways to get more money or generate more money. That's a, that's a big warning flag. Something is not right here. And you need to leave. Second Peter, verses 16 and 17. But Balaam, by the way, notice the contrast. He talked about Balaam who loved money. But then, almost excusing Balaam, look, he says, but Balaam was stopped from his mad curse when his donkey rebuked him with a human voice. In other words, you got to read a little bit between the lines. Peter's saying, at least Balaam listened. You know, God had to use a donkey to get his attention, but eventually Balaam stopped. Not these people. Driven by their own greed, they're actually worse than Balaam because Balaam eventually stopped and listened to the donkey, but they're not listening. And their destruction will be sudden and swift. These people are as useless as dried up springs or as a mist blown away by the wind. They are doomed to the blackest darkness. Do you get the impression that Peter does not like these kind of people? Their destruction will be sudden. 
They are like unthinking animals meant to be caught and destroyed. They live under God's curse. They are doomed to the blackest darkness. You think he's made his point yet? Has this been driven home? Okay. Jude 12 and 13, I put these verses together because this is I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but I can just imagine Jude is writing this and he's got Peter's letter in mind and he starts writing a metaphor and then it just starts rolling off the pen and he can't stop. And in my mind, he's saying all this in one breath. When these people eat in your fellowship meals commemorating the Lord's love, they are like, they're like a dangerous reef that can shipwreck you. They're like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They're like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and they have been pulled up by the roots. They are like wild waves of the sea churning upon the foam of their shameful deed. They are like wandering stars doomed forever to the blackest darkness. You can see someone just scribbling away. At least in my mind, you know. He's on a roll now. They're this, and oh yeah, and, and there's another one. Yeah, and that too. It's this righteous indignation that both Peter and Jude felt as they're writing about these people who pull others away into deception. Funny thing is, it rained today. We act like we're going to melt as we all run to our cars, right? We don't like the rain. But keep in mind, this is an agrarian society in an arid climate. You curse clouds that roll by and don't rain. I need that. We're trying to grow food here. So he said, we are inconvenienced by the rain. But in the ancient world, if a cloud rolls by your farm and it doesn't rain, that's a worthless waste of time. Why would you even blow over here? And that's their take on these kind of people. It's a waste of breath. They're worthless. They have no value. They brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting, with an appeal to twisted sexual desire. They lure back into sin those who have barely escaped a lifestyle of destruction. Parallel in Jude 16. These people are grumblers and complainers, and they live only to satisfy their desires. Sound like anybody you've ever heard? Grumblers and complainers who live only to satisfy their own desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they want to flatter others to get what they want. Again, this warning against these false teachers. I got to hurry on. 2 Peter 2, 19 through 22. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. Look at this. For you are a slave of whatever controls you. So out of one side of their mouth, they talk about God's grace and how you can do whatever you want. But in reality, they speak that way because they want to behave with certain actions. And Peter says they're not free. They, they brag about their freedom, but they're not really free. They're trapped by their own sin. They're enslaved by their own lust. You are a slave to whatever controls you. And when people escape from wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then get tangled up and enslaved in sin again, they're worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it and then reject the command that they were given to live a holy life. 
And then this lovely passage ending out 2 Peter chapter 2. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit. And another that says, a washed pig returns to the mud. Again, what kind of impression do you get from Peter and Jude, what they think of these people who would profess Christianity and profess spiritual authority to be a prophet or a teacher and yet only use that as an excuse to draw money from people and as an excuse to act in any way they want. It's a terrible, terrible picture. But even in this warning, as I'm coming to a close and we stand and maybe I'm at 35 minutes, so I'm pretty close. Even as we're coming to a close, I do see hope in this. And unfortunately, you're going to have to come back and listen to me one more time to get to 2 Peter chapter 3 to swing back around to the hopeful part. They don't end at this low note. It's a warning to those. You watch out for these kind of people. Their destruction will be sudden and swift. But to those who remain faithful, God has hope. God has a plan. Their destruction is swift and it's coming. But we need not worry about that. I can't prove my faith. I choose to live this way. But I can maintain my faith in an age of skepticism. And I know that God will eventually take care of those people. And he will provide a way of safety and salvation for me. And aren't you glad of that? Amen. Amen.